Hello, friends, and welcome to the Coffee and Deer podcast. Good to be back with you. Back after the holiday, the doctor is in the house. Uh, doctor, we should have probably got your prescription before Thanksgiving holiday about how much you should or shouldn't eat. But I got to ask you, are the pants still fitting uh, pretty much the same right now? The pants still are fitting pretty much the same. It was uh, it was a good, uh, good Thanksgiving, good holiday. Family was around, but I didn't overeat, which was a surprise. But um, I'm sitting here comfortably, pants are buttoned, and I'm ready to begin the show. Well, I can't say that I overate necessarily on Thanksgiving Day. I just continued to have Thanksgiving for about four days afterwards. So <laughs> I'm sure others can relate to that. Hey, I, I just saw, speaking of overeating and health and all that, uh, in my meat eater newsletter that I got, <laughs> uh, there's an article in there by our friend, Pat Durkin. It says buck fever can kill you. And so <laughs> part of the way it can kill you is if you're not healthy out there. And so I don't want to make total light of this. And especially with having the doctor here who can set us straight, but I, that made me think back to a couple of things. Number one, yes, it's a huge adrenaline rush. The other thing that is, I remember you killing that dough with your with your recurve a few years ago, you're, you're like talking into the camera cause you're filming it and you're like, I got to sit down here. I'm going to pass out. So this yeah. is a real thing, isn't it? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of different things that went on for me at that moment. What I was doing is I was actually hyperventilating and blowing off too much. Uh, you know, like we have to have a nice balance between CO2 and oxygen at the primary level, just to keep our lungs working the way they should. And yeah, when you actually exchange more gas inappropriately, it'll actually start to make you feel it pretty, pretty quickly, but, um, not to be too technical, but in regards to Pat's article, yeah, people really need to take care of themselves just because there's a lot of physiological things that occur when let's just say, for example, you are out of shape, the weather's cold, you're getting up early in the morning. Like there's a lot of factors. I mean, you know, there is like slang terms like holiday heart syndrome, you know, because people tend to binge drink in between now Thanksgiving time and new year's. So there's a lot of issues with that. Um, secondarily, when you talk about people going out and shoveling snow, like that, that first heavy, wet snow of the year is called a heart attack snow. So, I mean, yeah, you have to be careful and take your health very, very seriously. No question about it. That's worth a read, by the way, folks, if you want to check that out. Uh, it's, it's, it was an interesting read. There's some cool research in there that Pat references, and so definitely worth a look. Um, our guest today is going to be Evan Husingfeld. He's the president and CEO over at the Sportsman's Alliance in Columbus, Ohio. So looking forward to having him tell us about uh, some of the issues that are going on that impact our hunting that you may not be aware of. I think it'd be good to try to get Evan on the show a couple times a year if we can to discuss these issues so we're going to get into that our sponsor is remington and specifically remington ammunition i can tell you that just last night i was on uh, the ballistic charts looking at my phone i was out with my 30 30 i'm trying to fill an antlerless tag here in the in the firearm season and i was reminding myself of what i could expect my bullet to do out to 100 and 150 yards i don't look beyond that by the way because i don't <laughs> I, I have shot animals close to 300 yards out West. That's a whole, that's a different deal, but I am not a good gun shooter. And so with my 30, 30, I was just kind of looking to see what I could expect from my bullet. Didn't matter. I didn't see a deer anyway. Uh, but anyway, I was on the Remington ballistic chart. Uh, it's an iconic brand folks, as we all know, some people even name their dogs after Remington in some shape or form. So uh, if we know any of those people, um, 
And I'll just say, finally, you know, my, we get into the firearms part of it. It, it. It's hard not to find someone that's been in the outdoors, an outdoors person for any length of time that doesn't have a Remington gun in their cabinet. And for me, my most prized piece is my model 1100 semi-automatic 20 gauge, which was uh, handed down to me by my, my uncle, actually his family. Uh, sadly, he had passed away before he could ever shoot that gun. And so I was blessed to be able to receive that gun. And I try to carry it at least once a year in his honor uh, to make sure that it gets out some. And that's, like I said, it's a model 1100 Remington, uh, one of my prized possessions. So as they like to say at Remington, big green is back. So be sure to uh, put some boxes of green ammo in your, in your ammo case uh, this, this deer season. Ask NDA anything. I got a couple of these that we'll breeze through here. Uh, these are, like these are serious people are getting serious with us doctor we gotta we gotta change this oh, up I, yeah where's the guy that asked us about fighting chickens and stuff uh <laughs> jeremy from minnesota he wanted to know about what nda's guidance was on covid in deer because there have been some things in the press uh in the media about deer being able to uh, contract covid and in higher percentages than what people would think and so uh, what I did was I, I pointed him to a recent release that we just put out uh, talking about uh, COVID, which I'm going to tell you, folks, if you just go to deerassociation.com and we have a little search function at the top, if you just type in COVID, it's the very first article that's going to pop up. But I'll briefly read a segment out of there, which is probably the most important piece in terms of Jeremy's question. And that is, uh, currently, there is no confirmed risk to you of COVID-19 infection from handling deer field dressing deer, eating cooked venison. However, as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control, it is a good idea to protect your health by wearing disposable latex gloves whenever you're processing a deer. Then wash your hands, knife, and other equipment thoroughly when done. Uh, more study of the SARS-CoV-2 viruses and deer is needed. If your state and wildlife agency asks you to assist by submitting samples from harvested deer, we encourage you to participate in that research. Uh, we and uh, your help will enable research that ultimately protects our priceless deer resource. So that's coming straight from us. That's our position. And you can read about some recent Penn State research in that same article. So that's that's the answer for Jeremy and many other people who may have been uh, wondering that. And then one more I got. This is an interesting one. And uh, we're going to we're going to hit it briefly. It's one we could we should maybe do a whole show on this. But uh, Barry from Utah. He wants to know, what do you think of the possible trail camera ban in Utah? And so if you haven't seen this news, Utah is, I would say, I would describe it as likely. They're likely to ban the use of trail cameras in that state during certain times of the year, namely hunting season. And uh, I can tell you, Barry, we haven't, we haven't come out with a formal position on this, but I'll tell you personally, I'll go rogue here for a second. I'm very concerned about that. Uh, Arizona's situation, which we've talked about before, is very specific, had to do with watering holes and people strapping 20 different trail cameras to watering holes, and, and that, that's a different deal. Uh, the Utah reasoning is different. You should check it out if you're unaware of it. I, I would just say, making a general statement, one of the things that has gotten outdoors people, hunters, deer hunters in particular, even more excited about our sport was being able to go out and put cameras out and observe deer, observe other wildlife that they frankly couldn't see before. They've learned, people who hunt have learned so much more about deer, I will stick on the deer in particular, because of trail cameras, the video that trail cameras give them, watching deer work a scrape, just so many different things. And some people get every bit as excited to go outdoors to check their cameras as they do to actually hunt. 
And so I think it's a very dangerous precedent to take away a tool that I think has put more people into the outdoors and more hours into the outdoors because somebody might be worried that uh, someone may have an unfair advantage of taking a deer or whatever. Uh, as far as I have seen, we have not had a depletion of deer or other species ever since trail cameras come out. Harvest rates tend to be about the same or maybe even lower because you know what? People are educating themselves as to what's out there and they're making some harvest decisions based off of that. I could go on and on and on. Uh, so anyway, yeah, I personally hate the idea of a trail camera ban. I think it's short-sighted and I'm not a fan of it. And I hope we don't see this pop up in other places. So I'll get off the soapbox, doctor. Do you want to weigh in on that at all? Actually, I, I don't because I think you've covered it very, very well. There are a lot of upsides of what trail cameras have done for us as hunters and outdoors people. So, um, just one of my examples is, is some of the wildlife that I have captured on my trail camera that I would never be interested in hunting that I never even knew would be walking, uh, either through a piece of ground or my place up in New York. Um, it's just, it's just really interesting to be able to appreciate what your either habitat work or your own little slice of heaven or public ground is actually doing for the greater and I'm talking big picture now, wildlife and ecosystem and dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. Again, we could go on and on. I don't think we should have a show about this actually. Uh, Barry, you're getting a hat. And I hope, uh, I hope we can someday send you a trail cam or something like that <laughs> that you can use in Utah. So good luck out there. We'll continue to watch it and look for something. We're, we're discussing this internally at the NBA right now and what, uh, what we can do or say about trail camera use. Uh, real quick, before we bring Evan in, I just want to mention a promo. This has been going on. We have not stopped the podcast promo to get to get a membership. And so the reason I'm bringing this up again right now is because we are heading down uh, to the very last few days here by the time you hear this to be able to do your, your holiday shopping, or maybe you just need to renew your membership to NDA. Use the, use the code podcast. It can be lowercase or uppercase to save five bucks off the membership. Uh, so whether it's your membership or you want to gift one to somebody, please go over to the deer, deerassociation.com and do that. Save yourself the five bucks. All right. That takes care of the housekeeping. Let's go ahead and bring in our guest for today, Evan Husenfeld. Evan Husingfeld joins us here on the Coffee and Deer podcast. Evan is the CEO of the Sportsman's Alliance. He's going to tell us what that is here in a second, if you're not already aware. Uh, but generally, I'll tell you, it's a national organization that is fighting every day for the rights of hunters uh, and outdoorsmen. So uh, Evan's also a hunter himself. He's also a world traveler. We used to battle it out to see who could get the most air miles. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you're way ahead of me now. So, hey, Evan, good to see you. How are things going? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me. Good. Yeah. No, I, this is this is an important topic. I'd like to I'd like to do this on the show every single year if we can, just to oh. remind people who you are and what you're doing and why it's so important. But uh, we're going to get into all that here in a second. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, yeah, like you said, I'm the president and CEO of the Sportsman's Alliance. I've been in this role for oh, about five and a half years now. Uh, before that, I ran our, our core mission, government affairs work uh, here. I've kind of been a political junkie my whole life. 
uh, and specifically for the last 15 years, focused on on hunting resource policy and and really the the work that we do here at the Alliance. Uh, and having the chance to lead that's been a been a, a pleasure for me and been exciting and like you said, kind of fits right in my wheelhouse of of what I do and who I am and 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 who we are as the organization. Well, where in the heck do you live? What are you into? <laughs> I mean, we're gonna. I want to ask you I about your disclose, hunting. I won't. I'm not gonna disclose to you where I live. No, I, we live in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, the organization was founded here in the late 70s, uh, based on a, a, a ballot issue that would have been trapping statewide. Uh, we've been we've been uh, housed here ever since. Uh, I live on the north side of Columbus um, with my my family and uh, and uh, have the pleasure of being here every day. So you're in you're in big deer country, and you and I used to not only did we work together, but we hunted farms that were very close proximity. And so we had well, actually before I go too far, I just want to say. Um, if anyone, if Evan ever calls you and says, Hey, I need help getting a deer out of the woods. <laughs> um, I'm going to tell you, you need to decline that. You need to find any oh. reason why, because his deer seemed to die in, <laughs> in like the armpit of the earth. So is this true or not, Evan? Am I, am I embellishing a little bit? Just because there was one swampy, nasty you know, farm ditch buck that you had to help drag out, you know, you can't complain too much about that. I'll say, you, you know, I, I, I won't tell any stories. I'll be nice. But yes, no, I, I tend to put them down in areas that are uh, a little bit from the truck. Let's say that. <laughs> yeah, we did pull one out of the, I mean, it died right in the middle of a, of a flooded ditch. And we had to hook a rope up to the back of my truck and pull that thing out. Um, I think it was 12 feet straight up. I mean, it was, that was gross. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a mess. And I know where you were headed. There was a, a big old heavy five-year-old buck I killed and I asked you to help me with it. And that thing was like trying to pull a, a pickup truck with no wheels out of the woods. That still might be the deer with the biggest neck I've ever seen in, in person. That thing was just, uh, it was unbelievable. Well, yeah. I mean, what I didn't tell you is the first two arrows I shot at him bounced off. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's how big and muscular that deer was. But he was, anyway, he was a tank. Yeah, he was a tank. And I was, it was funny. I was just reminiscing. I'm, I'm trying to do some cleanup and go through some old trail camera pictures from years past. And I, I can't tell you how much I miss Ohio. Um, you know, I, I love my home state of Pennsylvania, but geez, even the ones that I was passing up and not even considering over there would be, uh, a, a one hit listers here. And so you have some wonderful deer out there and you've shot a few really nice deer yourself. How's the season going so far for you this year? Uh, well, um, it's been up and down, you know, I, I shot a doe opening day, uh, archery season. So that was, that was good. Uh, I actually uh, got the chance to take my boy he's, uh, four and a half uh, uh, talking about during gun season this week and we were able to put a second one down uh, but still haven't been able to connect one with any headgear and so that's been the, the challenge the last couple of years for me is just trying to get on them in, a, in an area that I can get on the, the, the bigger ones. I've seen a lot of, a lot of immature deer, a lot of young deer. Um, there's a lot, of, a lot of nice deer running around right now but uh, it's been a struggle for me to get on, uh, get on what I'm looking for. Well, you're not alone. That's, that's not, it's never easy. And just when you no. think you've got it figured out, <laughs> yeah, you don't. So how did, how did he enjoy, that was his first time in the blind, right? How did he enjoy that? Yeah, he's been, uh, and he's enjoyed it. Yeah, I've got pictures of him when, when he was uh, one and two and, and that uh, on the back of the pickup, uh, you know, you know, picking up the antlers and stuff like that back when I can actually kill bucks. Um, but so he's been, he's been geared up for this for a while. He's been really excited. He didn't get a chance to go out with me last year. Uh, just, situational uh, couldn't make it happen and so he's really really geeked up to go out and get out there and so he went out with me monday and tuesday night and 
got the chance to see deer at a distance. And finally on uh, Tuesday night, we got a chance to actually put one down and uh, he's, he's super excited. Uh, very, very into it. Um, you know, still pretty young, but uh, it's, uh, it's fun to see it through his eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's great. Uh, hey, I want to, I want to jump into, let's jump into the meat of the issue here. And there, when I say issue, issue is probably the key word. There are many issues you mentioned being a, a bit of a political junkie and some of this is politics and some of it is just sheer stupidity. Um, I share a, um, uh, let's, I'll, I'll be very polite today. I share some very strong negative feelings for some types of people when it comes to these anti hunting type issues, as you know. Um, but before we go too far, I, I want to ask you for those that don't already know, what is the sportsman's Alliance? What do you guys do? So at our core, we're, a, we're an organization that's founded and, and, uh, and designed to protect uh, the American hunter, the American sportsman. And uh, so we kind of do that through three different verticals. One is advocacy, one's education, and one is research. And so on the advocacy side of things, we, uh, we deal with state legislative issues, we deal with federal legislative issues, and we deal with ballot issues. Uh, and then additionally, we, we fight uh, lawsuits. We can get into the specifics of each one of those as we go. But the, the bulk of what we deal with uh, specifically on the advocacy side, is, is typically legislative issues that happen at the state capital level. Uh, you know, as you know, outside of endangered species and migratory species, not a lot of hunting, pure hunting policy is set at the federal level. A lot of those regulations and rules, uh, a lot of opportunities for the other side, for the anti-hunting community to attack our way of life is done in the state capitals. Uh, so that's where we find a lot of our, our attention being paid. Uh, litigation and stuff like that tends to be much more national and much more uh, bigger picture ESA type things that would impact uh, a lot of different areas, um, public lands access, that kind of thing. But certainly on the state legislative side of things, that's probably where we spend the bulk of our time. And then we also have education programs. Uh, we're launching a program. We've recently launched a program to bring conservation education into high schools uh, across the country. And that's taken off uh, like wildfire right now. Uh, we launched that last year in Pennsylvania and Ohio, and it's, it's growing like crazy. And then on the research side of things, we do research projects from time to time that help in, inform our advocacy work, but also help, uh, you know, uh, help improve hunting uh, and, and the hunting community as a whole. So stuff that, you know, we just finished a research project on, uh, on ways that the military can better engage active duty military personnel in hunting and the way that, you know, state wildlife agencies can, can talk to those folks, the resources they need. Uh, we've done uh, economic impact reports. We've done all kinds of different research programs that, that really help uh, inform some of those advocacy efforts and, and really will help state wildlife agencies and other uh, NGOs and, and conservation organizations uh, do good work in their missions as well. So Evan, I'm going to jump in here because you mentioned research and the fact that the Sportsman's Alliance is doing research very similar to the NDA as well, because research is important to inform people correctly, but there's also been some issues with some pseudoscience uh, scientific studies, or I shouldn't call, use the term scientific in that sentence, uh, but uh, pseudo uh, studies, if you will, used by anti-hunting organizations to shine hunting and hunters in a bad light, uh, which something, that was something that surprised me. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, I'm not sure what you're, uh, which one you're specifically referencing, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you see this a lot. They, you know, look, their their mo is is typically trying to push um, on emotion, trying to push on on people that will say what they want uh, want to be said. But you know, at the end of the day, you know, our our community's long stood on the idea that we've got science as 
um, kind of a guiding core principle for who we are. And we look, we look at the state wildlife agencies, we look at our federal uh, wildlife agencies and our, our land management agencies. And, and the idea that all this is based on ensuring the science is right. Uh, so I think our community has got a really, a really strong backbone there that says, look, you know, we're, we're not having to go out and be editorial. We're not having to go out and be um, uh, emotional in, in, the, in the messages we're pushing. The other side's got to do that because they've got to figure out a way to convince people that, you know, that, that, that they need to follow what they're saying. Our side, we can look at the science and say, look, no, this is not true. You can look at the biology. You can look at the carrying capacity. You can talk about healthy ecosystems and, and the need for a, balance, uh, a balanced approach to these things. Um, you know, that's the, it's the core principle of the scientific wildlife management is it's science. So I think we've got a, a pretty good leg to stand on there. Um, you know, the other side is, uh, I, you know, as I like to say, our friends in the anti-hunting community like to uh, push a narrative and they're, they're, they're trying to accomplish their goal. They're trying to accomplish their mission and they're going to do whatever they can to do that. Uh, that doesn't mean they have to tell the truth. That doesn't mean they have to put things in, in the best light possible. Uh, often they don't. Often they're looking for the, other, the, the alternative opportunity to that, which is to, is to skew uh, the reality of what's going on. That's why it's so important to have educational programs like we're doing in the high schools to get in there and, and, and really just lay out the facts for these students and show them, here's how our model of conservation is set up. Here's why it's the most impactful um, conservation program that we've seen anywhere in the world. Here's why we have deer and turkey and elk on the landscape when we didn't have them just 50, 75 years ago. Um, and I think once you start laying out those facts and you start showing people the truth of what's going on, uh, that cuts through the clutter and it really cuts through that emotional messaging from the other side. Yeah, it almost seems like it's um, like clickbait in the internet, something that seems mm -hmm. very um, eye-catching, very shock and awe. And you wind up, next thing you know, you're an hour and a half into wasting your time just falling down this wormhole. Yeah, there's, there's certainly a... a uh, you know, clickbait is probably a good way to describe it. There's certainly a very uh, emotionally tied effort there to, to get you enraged, right? To get you, get you fired up, to get the average person fired up and, and, and realize that they're not talking to us. They're trying to talk to the middle, right? So they've got, you've got this group of folks off on the left and the group of folks off on the right, not politically speaking, but just, you know, we're on one side, they're on the other side. And you've got a whole group of people in the middle. Uh, these are soccer moms in, in downtown Portland. There's, they're, you know, they're, they're people that have no connection to hunting, or the outdoors or recreational shooting or these kinds of things, but they might be susceptible to these messages that the other side's putting out about, you know, oh, these are the most cruel and inhumane practices, or this is why you shouldn't do X, Y, Z, right? And we can talk about that specifically as you look at some of these issues going on around the country, but that's who they're trying to target with their messaging. But it's also very, very effective with politicians. So we gotta be very careful about not, not allowing that to go unchallenged and, and, and not allowing that to go without a response because that messaging can influence politicians and it can ultimately end up influencing how some of these issues are decided. So you've mentioned education and I look at it as there are a couple different elements to that. So you have the sort of the average person out there which is where I believe a lot of these animal rights activists uh, and similar, that's who they target, right? They, they target the uninformed, the people who maybe know just a little bit, but they can be easily swayed. We're seeing tons of this right now as you see fundraising going on. We just had recently Giving Tuesday. It's getting toward the mm -hmm. end of the year. So there's that level of education. But then what I want to take you to is what 
which might even be more concerning, and that is the education of our core groups of people, our hunters. Uh, just that not only, I mean, I think hunters are generally aware that there are anti-hunters out there and they generally aren't going to like those people. But what I don't think they're aware of is many of these other things that are going on that impact them. And so the very general question I'm going to ask you before we get into some of these issues is why should a deer hunter sitting in Wisconsin care about a wolf issue. Well, that's a bad example. They care about wolf <laughs> issues in Wisconsin, but why should they care about a bear hunting issue in Washington, which we'll talk about? So why, why should deer hunters care about some of these things, whether it be Africa, whatever, coyotes, that they sure. might feel like, well, deer hunting is always safe? Sure. Well, I think there's, there's, there's a couple of different dynamics at play here. The first of which is you kind of unintentionally hit upon it, the predator-prey dynamic of of wildlife management, right? I think, you know, most hunters agree we need a balanced and healthy ecosystem. Um, and certainly a lack of predator management, a lack of predator control uh, can play a huge role on the on the abundance and, and health of other species. You look at, like you said, wolves and, and elk, wolves and deer, um, you know, even black bears, um, you know, we know there are predation, uh, predation issues there. Um, and so I think there is a direct impact on deer, on, on, on deer hunters, on elk hunters, on, on the like, um, from the management of those species. That's the easy one, right? Second to that, though, I think there is a, um, there's a very clear track record of uh, unsatisfactory victories is what I'll call them for the other side, right? Meaning that they're, they're insatiable. These, you know, they, they're not just trying to attack deer hunting. Um, that's way too popular and way, way too um, perceived as too, too strong of a community to attack today. So instead, they're going to try to protect, uh, attack what they, they perceive to be weak links, right? Or the fringe, fringe elements of the hunting community. So you look at trapping, you look at hound hunting, you look at some of these other, these other tactics. Um, but what deer hunters need to understand and elk hunters and, and folks that feel safe today is that these groups are not satisfied with a victory on trapping. They're not satisfied on a victory on some other issue that is not directly related to deer hunting. They're insatiable. They're going to want what's next. And I think that kind of leads into my third point, which is you look at the cyclical nature of how these groups have uh, attacked our community, right? For the, for the better part of we'll call it the last 50 years, 45, 50 years, there's been a pretty well-organized animal rights and anti-hunting movement in this country. It's why our organization was founded. Uh, it's why a lot of the conservation groups in, in this country do work on these issues is because they're, they, they have popped up over the last 45 to 50 years. You know, in the 80s, there was a big focus on trapping, but bow hunting was also a major uh, target of these groups. And so we've since seen that morph into international big game hunting issue. In the 90s, there was uh, a lot of issues around uh, hound hunting of predators that became a big battle. Uh, you know, today it's 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 changed into uh, uh, battles on your ability to hunt with dogs and your ability to care for dogs and how how we keep sporting dogs. It's it's morphed into uh, battles over the Endangered Species Act and how that policy is applied, uh, and really just access to federal land. So these things kind of come in a cyclical nature and they come in waves. And I don't think there's any question that at some point this could come back around to impact deer and deer hunting again, specifically, the matter is, is just what, when the other side feels like that's going to be a, a target rich environment for them. Like I said before, they, they tend to try to focus on what they perceive to be the quote unquote fringe elements of the hunting community because they're viewed as weaker uh, and, and easier opportunities uh, for victories. But we know that they're not going to be satisfied with just getting after trapping or getting after hound hunting, that at deer hunting and all the all hunting is bad. We've seen it when we've tried to do youth hunting initiatives. They're, they're going to oppose a youth hunting initiative. They're going to oppose, they oppose all this stuff. And so I think for the long story short for the deer hunter is 
Um, yeah, there's a direct impact on predator prey. There's a direct impact on, on a lot of that kind of stuff, but really it's about um, protecting the, the broader community and understanding that, you know, at one point deer hunting was under attack and it can be again. We have, uh, there, there's just a long list of issues we could get into, but one in particular I want to bring up that's uh, it's interesting and it's in the news right now. Bears in Washington. Uh, give us this. I think this is a good one to back up a lot of what you just said with a very specific issue that's happening right now uh, that could impact a lot of people. So tell us about what's happening with black bear hunting in Washington. Yeah. So again, long story short, um, Washington just lost its spring bear hunting season for next year. And it, it, it was done at the commission level. So this was not a, a vote of the legislature. It was not a um, anything like that. It was a commission commission vote that came out tied and then tied the, the, the management plan doesn't move forward. Um, and so I think it, what it does is it highlights the need for, for our community to be engaged, uh, for our community to be in, in contact with these folks. But basically what you have here is a situation where there are competing interests in the state of Washington. And you look at the, the urban versus rural breakdown of how that state goes. There's, there's a vast difference between folks that live in Spokane and folks that live in Seattle. Um, and those political differences can play into how people do and, and decide to manage wildlife. And so what you have here is a, is a case where the, 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 the governor of the state hasn't appointed all the commissioners that they, they possibly could. They certainly haven't appointed them all from the eastern side of the state. There's supposed to be a regional breakdown on how commissioners are appointed. Um, and you get to this point where um, there's, there is potentially undue political in, influence that's coming down from the top and a governor who isn't overly friendly to our causes. Um, and you're left with this idea that now you've just lost your spring bear hunting season. And the agency supports it. The biology supports it. You know, the, the idea that there is a, a need to cancel the spring bear hunting season doesn't exist. It's all just a fictional uh, a narrative pushed by the other side to further their agenda, right? And so um, you have this, 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 these sets of organizations, these sets of people that want to end bear hunting. They don't like spring bear hunting to start with. They don't like bear hunting at all, right? We just talked about this. They don't like any hunting. But they can take, they can push an emotional narrative, get this thing tied up in a commission, and all of a sudden a 4-4 vote means no more spring bear hunting. And so these things can go from, you know, kind of radical ideas being pushed by uh, with uh, uh, groups with emotional messaging into um, very real consequences in a very short period of time. And unfortunately, that's what we saw happen here in the state of Washington. Uh, we're taking a look at how it was done, whether there's an opportunity for, for legal intervention, whether there's an opportunity for recourse in any, in any uh, case. Uh, but the long and the short of it is, is folks in Washington aren't gonna have a bear next year. And, and it's really almost, I don't wanna say impossible, but it's really hard to get it back when you lose these things. Uh, just ask California about bear hunting uh, as an That's example. Right. Um, right. Yeah. And so, and you've mentioned, I want to, I want to just clarify too, for people that are listening to this, um, because sometimes I hear people that maybe they're just mostly a deer hunter and they'll say, well, I don't really agree with that hunting in Africa. Or I really don't agree with this. And I think that's where the education is so important. We say things like the Endangered Species Act. The Endangered Species Act is a, is a very good thing. We, if you're a conservationist, you should like the Endangered Species Act. The key here is how it's applied and how some groups will use that to try to stop hunting as an example. Um, so I just want to, want to bring that up here is that it's, you, you know, some people have strong feelings about trapping. 
but it all it all matters in the end. It doesn't mean you have to be a trapper, but you should understand what the issues are and at least understand them. The doctor there's a trapper, uh, you know, and and your community there, doctor. How, I assume that the the potential of losing trapping is something that's talked about pretty widely in those circles. It is, and we had a pretty prolific trapper from New York, Mark Zagger, on our previous podcast. Uh, the Red Dog Road podcast, and he talked about how he actually f- believes in his heart of hearts that there might be a day in his lifetime where trapping is illegal in the state of New York. So it's something that, as Evan was saying, they pick on individual groups that don't have a very strong membership. And it's not because of um, any other reason other than it's just a fringe sporting activity. Uh, trapping, let me just to give you some examples right now, um, because of the economy in Russia and China, trapping and fur prices are very low. The cost of trapping is rather high. Now we have gas prices starting to climb and uh, cost of living going up. Um, we have supply chain issues, so product prices are going up. And to fill up a truck that costs maybe $40 to fill up $45 three years ago now costs $65. And when you're getting pennies, um, you know, in regards to the return for your effort, people don't do it very much or they don't get involved in it very much. All of a sudden it be, that doesn't become as important as during the fur boom. Uh, so you have these, these marginalized, and I'm not saying because the mainstream deer hunter, duck hunter, pheasant, or whatever it might be, pushes them to the side. It's just that it's just a, 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 a venture that not a lot of people get involved in at this time in, in our culture. And so um, it's, it's no different than, you know, when you're matching up and playing basketball. I mean, if you put a six footer up against someone that's five, two, that person that's five, two is going to have one heck of a long game. So it's just, it's just a, a battle that seems to be ongoing, but as Evan said, it's, it's, it's a very stealthy battle because all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's, it's at your front door, but you never even realized it until it's almost too late. It's one of the many reasons we've had a focus at NDA of trying to educate the masses about something as simple as deer, which we, we think every, well, everybody knows about deer, but actually <laughs> the reality is most people don't know crap about deer. I mean, <laughs> even in our own newspaper here, there's an advert advertisement to for people to send in their hunting photos, which I think that's wonderful. I'm glad I live in a community that still wants to do a segment in the, in the newspaper of people's hunting photos. But the problem is in their little flyer, uh, they used a fallow deer instead of a, in their graphic. Yeah. They used a fallow deer instead of a whitetail deer. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. It tells me that somebody in our own community does not even know what a whitetail deer looks like. And so we're trying to put a lot of effort in educating the masses about deer and why they're so important to all of conservation and the cost of conservation if all of a sudden uh, we weren't hunting them or less people were hunting them. So anyway, uh, we could spend a whole show talking about that. I want to I pivot here for a second, Evan, because earlier I had talked about this being fundraising season and we're all getting bombarded with emails and flyers and whatnot. Uh, as a matter of fact, I got one from you uh, just a few days ago. So your fall appeal is out. Um, Humane Society of the United States. On the surface, that sounds like, gee, I'm someone that cares about cats and dogs. I should support them. Uh, 
tell tell me in the audience why that is not the case. Well, uh, first off, you wouldn't be some supporting what you thought you were supporting, right? I mean, they, I'll give them a lot of credit. They picked a name that is uh, uh, incredibly influential and tugs at the heartstrings of a lot of folks, right? Who doesn't like their local humane shelter that's trying to do well by uh, local stray dogs and cats? But uh, unfortunately, the Humane Society of the United States is not your local animal shelter. Uh, they're a international animal rights, animal uh, uh, welfare, and, and anti-hunting organization. In fact, they're the largest in the world. Um, and so, you know, you think about the name on one side being what it is, Humane Society. Uh, that's that's a clear play on the local Humane Society. But the the, the output on the other side of of what they do, uh, they're an advocacy organization. They're based in Washington D.C. Uh, they're probably the top adversary we see when it comes to uh, ballot issues, when it comes to litigation, when it comes to uh, legislative issues and really pushing this anti-hunting narrative. Um, that's certainly the goal of the organization. And it's not to uh, shelter dogs and cats in your local community. And, and if you talk to a lot of the local animal shelters, they're, they're, their fundraising takes a hit this time of year because folks that think they're doing well by sending HSUS a check. Uh, but that money doesn't trickle down to the local animal shelters. They're not affiliated with those groups. Uh, it's, it's that money goes to fight these radical advocacy campaigns. So the take-home message there, folks: be very careful of who you're sending money to this time of the year. Make sure it's not the Humane Society of the United States, but certainly right. it could be your local animal shelter, uh, which, frankly, we support here in our community. So, um, yeah, be very careful. So I, I want to pivot to this. We've talked about a lot of the things that hunters should be concerned about, so I don't know that we need to go there again because there's plenty. But what what can we do about it? What is it that we can do? Let's just say that I mostly have focused on uh, getting my I get my gun out of the out of the case sometime around uh, Thanksgiving weekend. I go out and fire a couple rounds, make sure that uh, everything is still in uh, in good shape, that I'm still mm -hmm. accurate, and then I go find my deer spot on opening day. All right. What, if I'm that person, what can I do to give a little bit back more back to the sport to help work on these issues? Well, I think it's important that you, you think about those things, right. You know, you know, at the end of the day, supporting groups like uh, ours or others that, that, that fight for what you believe in is incredibly important. Um, you know, we talked about those specific issues of what should concern hunters, and we talked about the remaking of these wildlife councils and how that can lead to downstream impacts. But I think at the end of the day, um, what you see there is our well-funded nature, the well-funded nature of our opponents has led us to a place where they're, they're not only organized, they're raising hundreds of millions of dollars a year with bad intentions to take away your rights, take away your ability to do what you love. And so you mix that with today's kind of changing political dynamic and changing demographic dynamic where we're, we're seeing a much more urban versus rural divide in terms of how politicians react to our issues, that specifically morphed now into even more of a suburban versus rural divide where these folks just don't have connections to who we are and what we do as a community. And so we're struggling with suburban legislators. So I think it's not only about finding groups that you believe in and you can support financially that, that are going to go out there and fight for you every day, but it's also about engaging and plugging in with your politicians, your, your local uh, state legislators, your, your local city councils, your wildlife council members, and making sure they understand who you are, what you do, what you believe in, why it's important to these things. Because frankly, for most of them, you know, uh, especially the state legislative level, a lot of these folks don't come from backgrounds where they understand hunting. They certainly don't understand trapping or 
or the deeper um, the deeper connection to uh, wildlife management. I thought you were going to go to the story on your local paper with the zombie deer, Nick. You know, you, <laughs> you, you see what gets put out there in the media on a topic that in the hunting community is a very front of center, front of thought um, idea on CWD. But yeah, it gets portrayed in the media as that's that's the, the forward looking thing we're putting out there is zombie deer, right? And so you, you got to realize that the, the average person doesn't have the the the, the amount of um, education, the amount of background in these topics. And so making sure that we're taking the time to educate those politicians, getting in there and meet with them, getting to know them on a first name basis, where they can come to you as a source of information when these topics come up, uh, they can't be experts on everything and, and nor should they be. Um, you know, but I think, you know, if, if we don't counteract that, that immense pressure that the other side is putting on these legislators, we're going to continue to see uh, votes go the wrong direction and, and, and outcomes uh, uh, that we don't, we don't care for. All right. So I have, a, I have a question. Let's dive into that a little bit further because I want to give credit where credit is due. So for the, the average sportsman or sportswoman, doesn't matter you know, what their interests are. Evan, if you could just kind of put into perspective the amount of man hours and or man or woman power that goes into fighting the good fight, like keeping up to date on what's going on so that a sports person like myself doesn't have to do it. Sure. It's immense. You know, you talk about uh, 50 state legislatures across the country, and you're looking at 100,000 plus pieces of legislation introduced every year. We have a, a, a system in our office that our, our government affairs team uses to track that, analyze it, go through those bills and try to pull out the ones that deal with uh, issues that would be of importance to, like you said, sportsmen and women. Um, of that, obviously, the vast majority don't deal with our issues, but you're still talking about thousands of bills every year, uh, year in and year out that deal with our issues. And so for us, it's about, you know, how do you start whittling that down and start finding those priority issues and the ones that could potentially move? It, it's a daunting task. You know, there, the, you know, we, we, we like to say there's, there's, I hope there's a day that we work ourselves out of a job. Um, you know, for frankly, you know, our organization exists as a defensive first organization to protect against these kinds of attacks. Um, we work with a lot of groups, NDA, RMEF, others in the conservation space who are doing great things on whether it's habitat, whether it's research, whether it's whatever the case might be, um, there, there will always be a need for those things. I hope there's a day we don't need an organization like ours that, that has to fight the anti-hunting movement. Um, but unfortunately, for the last 45 years, there has been a need for that. And I, and I don't see it changing anytime soon. So I, I think there is a need to really engage on these things. I think there's a need to educate politicians on these things. Uh, and there's a need for the rank and file deer hunter to understand the importance of those things, understand how they're buying a license, they're buying a box of, uh, of, of shells, buying a box of bullets, uh, buying a new gun, how that helps fund this conservation uh, system we have. So it's, a, it's incredibly important. It's a, it's a topic most people don't realize. And, and, and sadly to say, most people in our community don't even realize the true impact of what they're doing. To us, it's just fun, right? We wanna go climbing a deer stand. We wanna get in a blind. Um, that, that's, that's how we find uh, enjoyment. Uh, for the other side, for our opponents, you know, they're, they're much more interested in taking on the advocacy fight. They're much more interested in taking those things away from us. Uh, so if we're not engaged on those issues, if we're not paying attention, um, the outcomes aren't going to be, <laughs> outcomes aren't going to be great. So not everybody enjoys just stroking a check and we know that's one way they can help. So I want to give you a chance to talk about 
uh, well, first, before we do that, I, I do want to say, at the very least, you can sign up for Sportsman's Alliance newsletter and see what the issues are. And a lot of times, it's just a click away. You can click and send a letter off about how you feel about a particular issue. And there's no excuse for anybody to just not at least do that. I mean, there, whether it be Sportsman's Alliance, NDA, or others, we make that as easy for you as possible. So do that. Uh, but when it comes to the money, that is part of it. Uh, you got a mega raffle coming up. Yeah. And I mean, you guys give away an awesome stack of prizes and this is a way that you get supported. So go ahead and pitch that a little bit. Yeah. Well, our, uh, I'll, I'll steal a quote from our development uh, director. He said, you know, we don't exist to raise money, but we won't exist if we don't raise money. Right. And that's the, that's the unfortunate nature of nonprofits in this world and, and conservation organizations is that at the end of the day, it takes money to, to fight these fights. It takes money uh, to win these battles. I, you know, I like to say our product, here at the Sportsman's Alliance is our people. It's our know-how. It's our it's our ability to engage and win these issues. You know, we're not we're not doing habitat projects. We're not putting dollars in the dirt um, like a lot of great groups are. For us, it's about engaging on the legislative and legal issues that that will protect our way of life. And so, fundraising is a a vital uh, component of that. And uh, the mega raffle for us was something that was born out of necessity during COVID. Uh, like most organizations, we had a a banquet that we ran uh, here in Ohio. That was a primary source of, of driving revenue for the organization. And, and with uncertainty around whether or not we could have the banquet, whether or not we'd have 100 people or 500 people or what the caps were going to be, we decided to try to something different last year and go to a raffle system. Um, and it's, it's turned out incredibly well. You know, the, the thing itself is uh, <laughs> it's really a, an unbelievable raffle. There's, there's more than $265,000 in prizes. We're giving away a truck, a boat, UTVs. I think there's $70,000 worth of, of hunting trips in there, 55 firearms, uh, you know, coolers, all kinds of stuff you could ever want. Um, and uh, it's, it's, it's as big of a raffle as I've ever seen. Um, in addition to that, there's a, there's a 50-50 we're doing on that, which I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it's right around $100,000 right now is the, is the 50-50 pool um, for that. But you're talking about 100, almost 160 prizes uh, worth $265,000. And that, that will generate a significant amount of revenue for the organization that goes right back into these battles that we've been talking about today. Well, I'm going to participate in that. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to send you some money also for your annual fund. <laughs> Appreciate so look, that. Yeah. So look for that. Uh, and where can people, where can people find out more about the Sportsman's Alliance? Sure. We're on all your social media channels. We're on the web at sportsmansalliance.org. Um, like you said earlier, you can sign up for our newsletter on there, stay apprised of, of the issues that are going on, stay apprised of what's happening, not only in your state, but around the country, because, you know, like we talked about, these issues, uh, these tend to spread pretty quickly. Uh, we see something that pop up in California or Washington State uh, start to matriculate its way across the country and pop up in other areas. So you can kind of get a heads up on, on some of these themes of, of what's going on uh, by just signing up for our newsletter, signing up for a membership and staying engaged. Uh, but yeah, find us on online at or on, on your favorite social media channel. All right. Appreciate you being on, Evan. Get out there and fill that buck tag. And uh, I don't want any excuses the next time we talk. I'm, I'm going to try really hard. <laughs> <laughs> the effort has never been a problem. It's the, it's the, lately, it's been the success that's been the problem. So it is what it is. We'll get there. It's still fun. That was a very thought-provoking show today, Mike. It's not the fun stuff. We'd, we'd much rather be talking about how to hunt scrapes or somebody's buck of a lifetime that they shot. But the reality is 
the only way to keep that stuff happening is to do some of the groundwork. And that is being aware of the, the people and the entities that are trying to take away from our sport. Yeah, this is no different to put it in simpler terms. This is no different than, you know, someone trying to, you know, sneak into your garage and, you know, take your car or something like that. You know, they're taking away something that you own, that you've worked hard for, that you, I'll use the term love, or you, you know, you like a lot and, and just take it away from you. And unfortunately, not knowing that it's gone until you, you know, show up and turn on the light in the garage in the morning to go to work. And all of a sudden it's too late it is a very humbling feeling. So, you know, this is something that for all the individual listeners out there to appreciate is that it's hard to get involved, but these organizations are making it so much easier to get involved. It's the least you could do because you have to have a little bit more vision down the road. I mean, we actually think about habitat work and how we might be planting a tree today, but we will never appreciate that tree's full maximum potential in our lifetime. This is a very similar situation, I guess, because, but then again, if you look at specific states, like, you know, some states now can't hunt bear in the spring, like we talked about. So, you know, this is something that you have to get on board, you have to start moving forward, and you have to start thinking long-term, long-range, just for the, for the overall heritage of hunting, in my opinion. Yes. Excuse me. Very well put. And uh, yeah, you know, you don't want to go into your garage and see your car gone and say, well, geez, I should have put a lock on the garage. (laughs) So uh, by that time, the car is gone. Hey, Mike, it's firearm season here where we live. Um, I, I probably I'm among the world's worst gun hunters because I'm lazy. I'm trying to fill an antlerless tag and I'm being lazy about it. Am I being too hard on myself or can you just agree that I I need to put a little harder effort in here? It's still hunting and it's still not easy. Well, I just think it's, oh, well, that's that's a loaded question. How do I want to answer that one? I was going with it and I'm like, no, that's a little bit too harsh. I think that, you know, calling yourself lazy is one thing. You're still going out and enjoying yourself. So technically that's a win in my opinion. Um, I think that if you really need a second deer, if you put your effort, you know, if you put, you know, your shake off the B team negative vibe. I think you could probably get it done before the season's over, but if you don't, I know that second season, late season archery, if you will, uh, for us, I'm sure you can get it done then as well. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not fretting really. I'm just making a little bit of fun of myself, but I do get lazy when it comes time to gun season. And I don't go to some of my better spots that require me to go in and maybe climb up a tree and that type of thing. So, uh, I'll put forth a little effort uh, I think to try to get that done, but yeah, you mentioned late archery and, uh, I always like to hold on to a tag if I can. And I've still, I'm still hoping to get back to Delaware after Christmas where I have a buck tag as well. And that'll be archery hunting. Uh, incidentally, my, my friend, Ron, who we've mentioned on the show here, he, he found a, a really nice buck that he found dead in the woods that somebody had shot out in the field and lo and behold, it makes it into the woods and follow up your shots, folks. That's, that's the worst way to find a deer, uh, any deer, buck, doe, whatever, and uh, he finds a few every year. Uh, he did that while he's doing some timber management work. But anyway, yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back out with the bow. And I, I suspect that you want to do that some too. I am like right, right now I'm in the heat of battle of doing all the processing of the previous two deer that I you know got with a bow. And because I do all that work myself, there's a certain point where you're, you just don't want to do it anymore. And so that 
I, I'm glad this year gets me through rifle season or gun season, but by the time late season rolls around, I'll, I'll definitely be ready to get out and enjoy myself again. Cause it's a nice time of year. It's quiet, less hunting pressure. And you'd have to work a little bit harder and keep yourself warm, but you know, the rewards can be there just as easily as they can be on the first day of the season. Absolutely. I love getting out in the winter. It's just a fun time to hunt and it's a different kind of hunting and uh, looking forward to, to getting the bow back in my hand. But I, I would like to, I've been taking my old 3030 out, which I mentioned earlier. Um, that's the gun I killed my first ever deer with. And I still have that thing. And I am hunting on ground that is where I shot my first ever deer. And so I would like to, all these years later, come back around and do that. So I need to put forth a better effort. But uh, hey, I'm also, I'm heading to Missouri. Actually, when people listen to the show here, I'll be in the air probably. On the way to Missouri, we're going to do a field to fork event there and put some people uh, into the woods and hopefully filling a few tags that have always, these are adults that have always wanted to hunt and have never had the help to do so or never taken that step. So we're going to take, I think we have 11 hunters, myself and uh, Matt Ross from NDA and uh, Carly Dawson will be there as well from NDA, Shane Matzenbacher. So there'll be four of us there. And in addition, this is being hosted by our board chairman, Rick Dahl. So this is a big time NDA event in Missouri. Looking forward to going out and, and showing some new people the ropes and hopefully getting them hooked for life on, on deer hunting. Uh, so that's coming up. With that, I think we're going to call it a show. This was a good one. A lot of good information here. As a reminder, folks, please subscribe if you don't already. Tell your friends about us. Write us a review. We do appreciate that. I've noticed the reviews racking up. The doctor informs me that we're climbing up some charts, which is good. And that means people are listening and enjoying the show. And that's, that's really due to you, your willingness to come back and listen. So thank you for that. Also, Deer, Deer Season 365. Our other NDA podcast, our man, Brian Grossman, is the host of that one. Very good show. Subscribe to that one as well. I mentioned joining the National Deer Association. We have the promo going on. If you use the code podcast, do that and sign up for our newsletter. Sign up for our newsletter. It comes out every Thursday. Lots of great information. We had a great article in this recent issue about red oaks, uh, red acorn, red oak acorns, excuse me. Uh, very helpful. Very good information. So check that out. And also, I mentioned earlier, our guest, Evan Husingfeld, sign up for the Sportsman's, uh, Sportsman's Alliance newsletter as well. Get yourself up to date on all the issues that impact all of hunting and our outdoors pursuits. Thank you again for joining us, folks. We appreciate it. National Deer Association. We are united for deer. Deer.